0: Wouldn't your Bibles turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, or chapter 2, Gospel of John, chapter 2. We see that Jesus Christ had turned the water into wine there in Cana of Galilee at that wedding. Now he and his disciples and the mother and brethren leave Cana of Galilee to go to Capernaum. And uh, there, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, so about 18 miles they travel. So look with me in verse 12, John chapter 2, verse 12. After the after this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. Notice the distinction between the disciples and his brethren. Uh, Jesus Christ did have brothers, uh, half brothers. Uh, just, just a thought for those of you who think, uh, who maybe think that Mary was uh, um, uh, an eternal virgin. Uh, she had other other children. So, the brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Verse 17, And disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. By the way, that's found in Psalm 69 and verse 9. The prophecy concerning Jesus coming into the temple there. In verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was the temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that He had said this unto them, and they believed the Scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in His name. And when they saw the miracles which He did, but Jesus did not commit Himself unto them because He knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We do thank you today, God, for all that you've done for us and the blessings of sending your son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross, be buried, and rise again from the dead, that we could have eternal life. And Lord, may we uh, yield to his ministry in our life. And Lord, if there's something in our lives today that should be um, should be plucked out, should be taken out, God, I that you to rebuild that today. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this particular application that today is going to really coincide with our revival meeting next week and i think the lord appropriately put it on the we came to this passage for an, a time as this as we think about revival we think about things that in our life that shouldn't be there in other words revival is saying i'm not okay right revival i'm saying if i want to have revival i am not okay i need to be revived and as we think about jesus going into the temple and cleansing the temple, purifying the temple. Uh, we think about, again, our own temple, because the Bible describes us as being temples, uh, and our own temple in need of being purified. And so just from the very beginning, in our introduction here, want to give you this message, and that's the message in its application. We see, again, Jesus traveling from Cana up to Capernaum, and then it says he doesn't stay there very long, but then goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover, for the Passover feast. We don't know how many days transpire between, again, him going up to Capernaum and him going down into to Jerusalem for the Passover. But you could imagine, again, as he's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, he again would go over, come down the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and then go into the Jordan Valley, and then on down to uh, Jerusalem, and so forth. And there he enters that city. Josephus, the great historian, the Jewish historian, by the way, uh, says that during the Passover, Jerusalem could be as large or as an, an influx of 3, three million people. Uh, as many as 250,000 males would come to Jerusalem uh, for the yearly Passover. And so it was, uh, there was a lot of festivity going on. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, lot of joy, if you would, and lots of other things going on. Big host of people there in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Now, the Feast of Passover happened there in uh, April in, or in March and April. It coincided with two other feasts. So remember, all the Jews were required to come back to Jerusalem three times a year for holidays for these feast days we 've covered this Wednesday night, and the first group of those feasts are the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits, which coincided with the barley harvest. So you can imagine all the Dispersia, all the jews who were dispersed throughout all the land all all that area would come to jerusalem to uh, for this holiday for this feast day unto the lord and they would celebrate that uh, for seven days and then the again the feast of first fruits and they would go home for 50 days and come back for the day of pentecost the feast of weeks and that was the uh, festival or the holiday that coincided with the wheat harvest and then you'd have a few months transpire and they would come back there in the summer months for uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the feast of De- or the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of uh, Trumpets. And those coincided with the fruit harvest. So those were the specific times of, that the Jews were required to come back to Jerusalem and there to worship. Now, when they came back to do that, here it's speaking of as, he, as they come back to the Feast of Passover that the particular temple that Herod had rebuilt and had, I guess, updated, if you would, remodeled from Zerubbabel's temple was covered a vast amount of property. The temple mount at that time covered 19 acres. The temple was humongous. And around the temple were four different courts. There was a woman's court, a women's court. There was a Gentile court. Uh, There was a Jewish court. And there was a priestly court. Now, what the Bible is describing here is that Jesus is coming to the Passover, that he enters the Gentile court, which is kind of amusing, that the mercantile, or it was called Anna's Bazaar, is what it was called, this market that was put up in the court of the Gentiles. Anna was a high priest that had been, uh, if you would, uh, ushered out by the Roman government 15 years earlier because of the corruptness and other things, and... uh, but in this court, in the Gentile court, I keep saying that for a reason. It wasn't in the Jewish court. It wasn't in the women's court. (laughs) You know, it wasn't in the priestly court. They felt it was okay to sell cows and sell sheep and sell dove as long as it was in the Gentile court. Remember in the Bible, there's only two classifications of people, Jew or Gentile. And the Jews were self-righteous, pompous, whatever. and, And they did not like anyone who wasn't a Jew, basically. And so, okay, we just put it, put all this merchandising in the Gentile court. So, as you entered the Gentile court, you would hear the cows mooing. You know, you'd hear the sheep sheeping. You would hear you would hear the, the hustle and bustle and the and and all the things that go along. The smells, the smells of cattle and sheep and all those things in this Gentile court, as there was exchanging of money going on. So the, the and the stock being exchanged lambs were required to be sacrificed and so a family would bring a lamb to the temple well first it had to go to the priest to be examined to see if it was fit to be sacrificed it had to be a a lamb a young lamb a a lamb without blemish without spot and so they bring it to the priest and what was happening was you you may bring your uh, little sheep that you thought was without blemish without spot but those priests they would find something wrong with that sheep (laughs) so that you would have to take it to the Gentile court and, and, uh, and, and, and buy a new sheep that was, you know, okayed by the priests. Then they would take your sheep and give it to the next guy that bought a yeah. certified sheep. That's what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, same thing with the cattle, with the dove. The, there was a lot of thievery going on and crookedness, and uh, the priests were a part of this. Now, I want to clarify before I describe the money exchange that this market started out as a good thing. If you think about having to travel from Galilee or maybe even you know, as far away as wherever you may be, maybe a thousand miles away, and you had taken this long journey and you would brought your little sheep with you, it might be a little hard. So this started out as a convenience so that, that Jews could come to Jerusalem and buy sheep to sacrifice. You know, to buy a dove to sacrifice, to buy an oxen to sacrifice. But it had turned into something totally different. The priests had turned it into a money-making business. Again, think about 3 million people. How much money could be made? Lots and lots of money. And that's what was going on. They had become very corrupt. The money exchange, what was that? Well, the Jewish males were required, those above 20 years old, were required to give a shekel or half shekel to the priest or to the temple for the maintenance of the temple and so when they came to jerusalem for the feast they would give that tax well they couldn't give the tax in foreign currency they couldn't give it uh, because the foreign currency would have you know it might have caesar's head stamped on it or or whatever it is so they had to exchange their foreign currency for shekels for the uh, priestly shekel the the temple shekel and so in that exchange they would charge a fee and get their yeah. cut everybody got that one come over here they would get their cut the priest would get their cut for making that exchange for a shekel and then that way the the males the, could give their tax so this was what was going on you had tables upon tables upon don't get the ideal there was a little room like maybe over here i'm talking about a vast court maybe an acre or so of this court of of cattle here and sheep here and and dove here and then here's a whole line of tables and tables upon tables upon tables of them exchanging these uh, foreign currency for shekels and jesus christ as a boy a 12 year old boy had come to jerusalem he had witnessed this going on for years as he came with his family two or three times a year Don't think that Jesus didn't see this a lot as a boy and then as a young man. And so when it came time at the age of 30 years old to start his public ministry. Now he had had turned the water into wine at Cana, but no one knew about it except a few, his mother and some of the disciples. So it wasn't a public display of his deity, of his messiahship. But this is going to be a public display of his messiahship, of his authority. As he walks into that Gentile court, he takes a cord and he, he makes a cord, he makes a scourge, he makes a whip that you would whip, uh, you know, cattle with. And he goes into that court and he begins to whip the cattle and he begins to, to, to drive out the cattle and drive out the sheep. Notice how good he was. He told the Those who were selling the doves, hey, take your stuff and get out. He didn't go, you know, throw open the cages and let all the birds out. So there was certainly, uh, I would say that would be perceived control. He wasn't just, you know, brick red and just, you know, uh, having hysteria and throwing everything. No, methodical, coming into that temple, coming into that court, driving out the money chambers, taking the tables and throwing them over and uh, watching the coins i could just see those money changers reaching down trying to get their coins that fell on the ground and and all the things that went into it and jesus was showing that he had the authority to do this it was unique in that nobody stopped him also this was prophetic in that malachi we won't turn now but malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 prophesied that this would happen We already mentioned about Psalm 69 that also mentioned about uh, the Messiah um, doing something of of sorts like this. So Jesus Christ goes in, overturns the temple. This is what he had seen every year. He had seen the thievery. He had seen the greed as a boy, as a young man. And now at the beginning of his his ministry, he shows his authority. He shows his power. And there's no resistance. If you would, he shows his righteous indignation. See, our world perceives Jesus Christ as a God of love. And certainly the Bible describes him as a God of love. And we know that he is a God of love because God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, right? That died for us on the cross. God is a God of love. He loves you. He loves me. He sent his only son to die for me and raised his son from the dead. I'm telling you, God loves you today. God loves you so very much. In fact, he said before you ever loved him, he loved you. We love him because he first loved us. He's demonstrated his love by way of his son. He's demonstrated his love by way of his his providing for us, caring for us. But also remember that not only is God a loving God, but he is a just God. And here we see the righteous indignation of God. Again, today society has a misunderstanding of who God is. We all like to take God and put Him in a box of our own making, in an image of our own making. God is not just a God of, God, of, God of love, but He's a God of, of wrath. That sin deserves judgment. Hang on, sin requires judgment. And so therefore, here we see Jesus... Who is the image of God? He said, if you've, Jesus' own words now, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And as Jesus is walking around, God is walking around, and God comes into the outer court, and God sees that Gentile court, and He sees the, the, the absolute thievery going on, and, and, and the Jews being mistreated and being cheated, He, in His righteous indignation, goes into that Gentile court and overthrows the, the, the tables and, and with a whip drives out the, the stock and drives out the sheep. Though a God of love, He's also a God of wrath. We also live in a day and age which has a little problem with good and evil. <laughs> there is good and there is evil. There is right and there is wrong. Black and white do exist. They are, they do exist. We live in a society of relativism when everything's okay as long as it's okay with you. But listen, everything isn't okay. There is right and there is wrong. There is good and there is bad. And can I remind you, you can you can love and still hate. Let me, let me say, you can love and still hate Somebody's actions. You can love them and not like their actions and not agree with their actions. I use the word hate on purpose. I think we have color coded it a little too much. There there are some things we ought to hate. I believe Jesus Christ came into that outer court and he hated what was going on. And justly so, rightly so. And he came in and in his righteous indignation, he took action understand that you can love and and still hate some someone's actions or society's actions immorality you, in other words if i had a kid one of my sons you know i can still love them even though i don't agree with their actions even though i may not agree with their lifestyle hello we see today immorality rampant in our society and you can love someone and not condone their actions. You can love somebody and, and be kind to them and 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 dislike and hate, if you would, their actions. In fact, as Christians, there ought to be a disdain. There ought to be an absolute dislike of immorality, a hate. The abominations going on today. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. And we ought to get angry about a few things. Listen, Christian, you ought to get angry about a few things. There, there ought to be some things that make you mad. There's some things in our government that ought to, that's going on that ought to make you upset. Ought to make you angry. And by the way, you ought to do something about it. Get out and vote. For the first time, I told you all three or four years ago, I actually gave money. Uh, to a candidate i've never done that before and i've done it every year since and i'll continue to do so you say you say you're upset about what's going on have you given a dime to a candidate a lot of a lot of silence going on have you given a dime to a candidate who agrees and lines up with your beliefs take action amen do something about it we have some good candidates here in our area really good candidates, really good men who are worthy, and women who are worthy of your support. Take that opportunity. Get angry about what's going in our government today, and then do something about it. Jesus did something about it. And by the way, I I mentioned money. Prayer. Prayer is the best thing we can do, no doubt. Pray for our congressmen. Pray for our senators. Ted Cruz, these guys need our prayers. Our president needs our prayers. We ought to get angry about some things in our society. It ought, it ought to upset you of things going on today. You name a bunch of them. It ought to upset us and get angry about some things going on in churches today. Verse 17 says, And the disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Psalm 69 verse 9. A quotation from the Old Testament. The Old Testament temple. Jesus goes in and purifies, if you would, that temple. He cleanses the temple. In his righteous indignation. Let me give you a couple of applications today. And that is this. There is a new temple. A temple not made with hands. It says there in verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? In other words... We know the Messiah is supposed to do what you just did. Don't think these Pharisees and Sadducees were dumb. Amen. They knew Malachi. They knew the prophecies. And I, I believe absolutely that there was no resistance when Jesus came in. They knew the fallacy. They knew the thievery going on. And they and somebody had finally put them in check. And as they thought about it, there's no doubt they thought of these prophecies. They said, okay, if this is the Messiah, if Jesus is publicly proclaiming his messiahship, then there should be other things that follow. And one of the other things in the Bible, the Old Testament prophecies, was that the Messiah would do miracles, would perform miracles. And so these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the religious leaders come to him and say, okay, what sign are you going to give us? What sign do you give? What what miracles are you going to perform to justify what you've just done? And Jesus said this to him. He said, and he answered unto them, verse 19, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. (laughs) <laughs> this, this this temple, Herod, Herod the Great's temple that took 40 and six years to build. You destroy it three, in three days, I'll build it in three days. And of course, he was speaking of the spiritual temple. He was speaking of his body. He was speaking of his body. John clarifies that and says, then said the Jews, whatever, but he said verse 21, but he spake of the temple of his body. This again was a legitimate question. Show us a sign. Are you the Messiah? Then show us a sign. And then we see his answer. And the answer is this. There are three temples in the Bible. There's the physical Old Testament temple, uh, Herod's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Solomon's temple, the tent that Moses had put together in, in the wilderness. These are temples, tents. In the Bible, in the New Testament, the Bible says, the church is the temple of God. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, Ye also, as lively lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. A spiritual temple. A spiritual temple. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to, if you'll hurry. Ephesians chapter 2. If not, I'm going to read it before you get there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. All right, so the Old Testament temple, physical temple, the tent of the Old Testament, the tabernacle then we have the New Testament uh, temple, the church, if you would, that's no longer physical, but it's each individual person, the spiritual temple, the members are stones. Look with me, verse 19, Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom, listen to verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. All right, so it's a reference back to Solomon's temple. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation, a home of God through the Spirit. So he's, Paul here is drawing from the Old Testament temple a metaphor. He says, you are the temple, or we are spiritual houses, if you would, Peter says, and then we are fitly framed together, building up a spiritual house, a holy habitation, a, a home for the Lord. Here's the explanation. As members of Heritage Baptist Church, and you've heard me give this explanation before, as members of Heritage Baptist Church, you are a lively stone. Some of you are more lively than others. But we are, we are living stones, the Bible says. And as you came into the building today, by the way, we could have met at the public park. We could have went down to the Haslett Park, we could have met together, and as we came together, as we come together, then we are building up a spiritual house, right? Hurry, uh, Isaac, come here, hurry. Matthew, come here. Uh, Micah and uh, Sam and and the uh, hill boy. All right? Everybody kind of come over here, Isaac. So each person comes into the house again. We could have met anywhere. We could have met at the civic center. We could have met anywhere. We could have met downtown Fort Worth. Doesn't matter where we meet. We could have met at uh, at Brother Taylor's house. Doesn't matter, All right? Because the members we make up the spiritual house. Yeah. The Bible says we we make up the spiritual house as we walk into the building that we are. And this is a poor illustration. Fitly, you know, we're not going to make you hold hands, but fitly framed together. Fitly framed together, right? All right, fitly framed together. I would play Red Rover, Red Rover, but I'm not going to do it. But certainly, uh, this is st- they're stronger together. Everybody would agree to that. There's no doubt. I mean, I don't know, the guy, the kid in the middle might not be, but the rest of them are stronger together as they are linked together. And as a church, when we come to church, and as we are fitly framed together, we become stronger together. We become a spiritual house in the Lord. Thank you. You can sit down. Appreciate all that. A spiritual house to the Lord. Fitly, we are a living stone. So I'm a stone, you know, everybody in here is a stone. We're building up a spiritual house, a, ho- a habitation, a home for the Lord that, that the Lord can come and indwell. Just as he did in the Old Testament, came and indwelt the Old Testament temple when it was dedicated, as he did that physically, he will do that spiritually for us as a church. What What are the conditions? Well, go back and look in the Old Testament. The conditions were this. Solomon built the temple. You had to have that. He prayed and the king humbled himself. And the people humbled themselves. And they were praising God. There was a great choir there. There was a great, great singing going on. And the Bible says, as he ended his prayer, the fire of God came down. Wouldn't you like to see that spiritually? Revival can happen if we will cooperate and make the conditions right. If each individual member will be ready to worship. If each individual member will be ready to praise the Lord. When you come into this house, having already walked with God during the week. Having already conditioned yourself and ready for worship. That's what we should do. If you want true revival, if you want to see revival happening in our church... In, in a great way, come next Sunday, ready, ready for worship, ready to praise the God, praise God, ready uh, to enter the, the Lord's house, this New Testament temple. The Bible also describes us as individuals as temples. I am going to turn there real quick. First Corinthians, chapter three. First Corinthians, chapter three. If you want to turn there and see the wording, First Corinthians, chapter three. And uh, verse 16 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Ye are the temple of God. I won't turn there, but Second Corinthians six sixteen verse 17, says the same thing, where we are the temple of God. If you're saved this morning, You know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Lord lives in you. And the Bible says, Ye are the temple of God. And ye are not your own. Listen, we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. The Holy Spirit comes and enlightens us. The Holy Spirit comes and empowers us. The Holy Spirit comes as our helper and our counselor, our comforter and our teacher one called alongside there for us but yet we as christians get caught up in the cares of this world in the daily grind and even in serving many times we we uh, equate serving with god's love we get caught up in all these things the cares of this life we leave off walking with god we leave off devotional time with god we lead off that quiet time with God. And we find ourselves in a mess. And when you find yourself in a mess, when you find yourself in a caught up, only Jesus can take care of that for you. What I'm saying is some of us need Jesus to come into our hearts and do a little scourging. Our, our church needs that. See, the, the cure for the church is not us turning over a new leaf. It's Jesus coming in and doing a little. Say, preacher, that's kind of rough. You're, you're saying <clears throat> that's what I'm saying. I'm saying sometimes we, we allow stuff in our life that shouldn't be there. And sometimes in churches, churches allow stuff that shouldn't be there. I mean, there's churches today that make their house a merchandise. They care more about what, they're, what books they're selling than, than, the, than the souls of man. listen, we, we, we need the Lord Jesus Christ to come in our life. One of the illustrations I read was this that if you remember back in the Old Testament when the children of Israel uh, took the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and took it with them to war against the philistines and and so here you can see the priests carrying the the ark and, and the Philistines were, were, they were they were scared. Uh, they got word back that said hey the ark is with the army Uh, what are we going to do and needless to say they went to war and they captured the ark the philistines captured the ark the jews thought that would never happen god would never let the ark of the covenant uh, be captured and what did the philistines do with the ark they took it to their temple the temple of dagon and they put it inside the temple of dagon they get up the next morning and go to the temple and their big statue of dagon had fallen on his face in front, of the, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. What was the metaphor? What's the picture there? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is a picture, if you would, of God's presence. Of God's presence. And when God enters our house, other things will fall. In other words, if, God is, if God's on the throne of your heart, and God is first place in your, in your life, then other things will simply vanish away. We need a little bit of scourging going on in our life. If we are to prepare for revival, we need a little bit of scourging going on in our life. Verse 22 says, When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they remembered and believed. They believed. They understood what he had said. I want to go back to verse 19 in conclusion. He said, Jesus said this unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Can I remind you that Jesus Christ came with a purpose? This was his first official act publicly. And he, and he, and he says this, I came here to die. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he knew he would go to the cross. For three and a half years as he walked that trail, He knew that the final day would be the death of himself on the cross of Calvary. And yet, he walked, and he healed, and he loved, and he cared. He did all those things knowing that he would die. That was his purpose. That was his love. That was his care. He knew what was before him. But I thank the Lord that three days later he rose from the dead. Amen. And At that point, the veil of the temple was rent in two. Amen. The temple was destroyed as a place for worship. The temple was destroyed. The temple was done away with. Amen. The Old Testament contract, and I don't have time this morning in conclusion to do this, but the Old Testament contract was done away with. The New Testament contract was put in place. Amen. I'm thankful for the grace of God, aren't you? Are you the temple of God this morning? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Does the Holy Spirit indwell you? You want want a life that's complete? You want a a life of meaning and purpose? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Christian, He's still working on us. Every once in a while, you've got to come into the court and do a little scourging. Maybe this morning... There's some things in your life that shouldn't be there. Maybe there's some sin in your life that should not be there. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been knocking at your door. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been kind of whipping you a little bit. Maybe this morning you need to come and yield to Him. And yield to Him and ask for forgiveness. One day, the building will be completed. One day, the capstone will be put, put in place when Jesus Christ returns. What a day that will be when Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. I sang this the other day. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. It it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him. One look at his dear face, all, all those things will just vanish away. So bravely, gladly run the race till we see Jesus. He's still working on us. Amen. Let's all stand. Hymn 41. There is a fountain filled with blood. The cleansing of the temple. Jesus Christ. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Beginning his public ministry. Offering, really in this place, offering himself as the Messiah. Offering himself to the Jews as the Messiah. By the way, he doesn't do this again until the end of his ministry. And when he comes in, and they, they cry, Hosanna, David, Hosanna. So it's, it's unbelievable a thought to think this was the first time. Hey, I'm the Messiah. And of course, we know they rejected him. Heavenly Father, we pray, God, that you would again touch hearts this morning. Lord, if there be someone here who's not saved, I pray to get saved today. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. On behalf of our church and staff, thank you for listening to this sermon. For more sermons and more information about our church, please visit hbchazlet.org.